Sean Bell, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Oscar Grant, Michael Brown, John Crawford III, Sandra Bland, Brianna Taylor, Philando Castillo, George Floyd, say their names. Those are just a few of the folks who lost their lives to police brutality. And we just want to say that we stand with the victims, we stand with their families, and we stand against institutional racism. We stand against police brutality. So at this time, I also want to throw out a few disclaimers. One, if the audio quality sounds a little bit different, we are still recording remotely. So please blame our audio equipment and not our hearts. And for our younger listeners, as you're listening to this episode, you're going to hear some mature themes and some mature language. We encourage you to listen to it with a parent or mentor or someone that can help you process some of the things that you're hearing. And lastly, as an update, since the recording of this episode, all four officers have been charged in the George Floyd case. Thank you so much. Please enjoy the episode and give us any feedback that you have, as always, in solidarity. From the Bronx, we are the podcast that celebrates Bronx creatives and change makers. I'm your boy KB, also known as Kevin. Uh, first and foremost, I want to say that we stand with the victims of police brutality, Black Lives Matter. We stand with the family of George Floyd. And I'm not exactly sure what number episode this is going to be. We definitely had to kind of change direction in the middle with everything that's happening. Uh, Jay, I'm going to kick it over to you. What's going on, family? I hope everyone is doing well. I hope everyone is safe. As we know, and as KB mentioned, given today's times, we thought it was extremely important for us to use our platform to have a real discussion about police brutality and injustice in Black and Brown communities. So today we are joined by a very special guest. He has been a member of the New York City Police Department for 16 years and is featured in the Emmy Award-winning film called Crime and Punishment, which highlights injustices within the NYPD. Please join us in welcoming Richie Baez. I'm very excited to be on this episode, man. Jason and Kevin, like, uh, you know, me and, me and Jason, we go back a few years. So, you know, we tight. Kevin, you know, I just met you, but I can see that you're a stand-up brother, man. And that's what we like to be around stand-up people, you know? With, with, everything, with everything happening, I think it was kind of fitting that you would be able to come to our show. There's a lot of anti-police sentiment, understandably, right? People are upset with everything that's happening. People are taken to the streets. People are sick of racism in this country and definitely racism in law enforcement. And today we're going to talk about it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, we definitely need to uh, speak on it, you know? <laughs> can't stay quiet because staying quiet is the same as consenting. That's what we have to do as a people. Like, uh, regardless of what type of occupation you have, you're a police officer or you are a janitor, we are the same people, you know? We are just going through the same struggle. 
silver man of color, you know, a black Dominican. So we can never lose sight of that because whatever happening to you could definitely happen to me or any members of my family or any of my loved ones, how we treat each other. So that's how I go about being a police officer. So one of the things you, you just said that you're a black Dominican and you're also a police officer, can, can you kind of talk about what that, I'll call it double consciousness is like? So W.E.B. Du Bois talks about this idea of double consciousness, being black, being an American. Can you talk about what it's like to be, to be black and to be an officer? Because I feel like those things are at odds in this country. Uh, to be black and be an officer, you know, I could tell you a little background on, on myself. I always wanted to be in law enforcement. And even seeing how cops are treating my people in my neighborhood, how, I, how they treat my family, how I seen them treat my friends. I still wanted to be a cop, but I was like, if I'm going to be a cop, do I have to be like these guys, you know, being basically horrible human beings. It wasn't up to met these two Italian cops that up and went in the Heights, Washington Heights. They taught me that you could put on this uniform and still be respectful and still be uh, dignified. Also, my upbringing in the Bible, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Judges and officers sure you have in all your gates. So having like a double consciousness of being black and being an officer, it never really hit me until I saw that there is a divide within the police department. There is a difference on how you treat people in the police department. Because you can go to uh, my haven and somebody's drunk, you'll treat them one way. But if you go to Yankee Stadium or Madison Square Garden and you see a uh, white people from other town, or from even from the city, acting drunk. You treat them a totally different way. You put on kids' gloves. While in the Bronx or in Harlem or any inner city neighborhood, they'll take out, they'll lay the hammer on you. So that's the difference I see in policing. But as me and myself, I knew that I'm gonna treat whoever I'm gonna treat with respect first. Can I ask you a question to follow up on that? When was the first sign of an injustice that you experienced or saw as an officer with the uniform on? And can you talk to us a little bit about what was going on in your mind, how that made you feel, and ultimately how you reacted to it? The thing I know is, is something that I definitely did as a kid. I used to hang out in my friend's building. You know, we used to hang each other's in each other's building and kids were getting arrested for criminal trespasses for being in buildings that they did not live in. Mm. So I like, damn, if this would have happened when I was a teenager, my rap sheet would have been around the block, you know, a mile long, because that's what I did, you know? Because sometimes you can't have, the place would be too small to have five or six boys in your, in your bedroom, you know? It'll be too hot to be in your bedroom and stuff like that on a, or anybody's house. So, you know, we'll hang out in the building, in the lobby. We'll talk. We help the old ladies with their groceries that need to come in. We open the doors. We make sure that everything was clean. We didn't bother anybody, you know? And if somebody complained, you know what? We took it down a notch, you know, to make sure that it's acceptable. But once I came into the 40th, I saw how teenagers were being arrested. I mean, hundreds, hundreds. They'll bring in 20, 30, uh, teenagers ar uh, arrested, you know, criminalized. Now you're giving them a criminal record, you know. 
Like, who's going to hire you if you got like 40 criminal, 40 arrests for criminal trespass, you know? And I'm going to see that, oh, for hanging out in the building. They could just see 40 arrests, 40 misdemeanor arrests. So now you're trying to become a, a police officer or you're trying to get any type of law enforcement job. They see this. Who's going to take you? So that's some of the injustices that I was seeing when I first came to the police force. Similarly to some of your experiences growing up, right? I know for sure. I, I grew up in the Mount Haven area, which you, you mentioned, right? And so I know growing up, I saw a lot of police officers. I was consistently stopped, mostly for walking through the park. <laughs> uh, you know, this park right here. Uh, and so I would, uh, it, it's meant just historically, that was like an easy way for people, for officers to give a summon, summons. And I remember one day, this was after I graduated from college, I was already working. I was dressed up, coming home. It was winter, freezing. And I'm walking through the park. And I remember an officer stopping me while I'm, and I know I'm in the, I know I shouldn't be walking through this park, but it's freezing. I'm trying to get home. Right. So for me, that is the fastest way for me to get home so I can get out the cold. And as I'm stopped, the officer asks, Hey, do you know why you're being stopped? Like, yeah, I'm walking through the park. And we, we start having a car. So he's asking me like, why? And I'm like, it's cold. I'm just trying to get home officer. I don't want to be out here too long. You know, it's dead middle of winter, et cetera. But the officer started to be really rude to me. And maybe five seconds later, other officers started to come in. Cause I guess maybe they were patrolling the community or whatever. And so the other officers start to come on over. And as I'm trying to have a conversation, the officer starts to be, become really rude to me. There's a woman who comes, a woman officer who comes over as well. And I guess for to support him or back him up or whatever. And then the officer starts to ask me, hey, do you have a criminal record? Have you been stopped by police before? All these questions. And uh, they ask me for my ID as well. I give the officer the ID. They go over my ID. They come back and they ask me again, hey, have you been arrested before? And so I responded. I said, well, I'm assuming that you probably saw and have the answer to that already since you just ran my ID and came back and asked me the same question. So, yes, he starts to be like even more rude i guess because in his mind you know i i fit a, a criteria of whatever he thought was in his mind but then the woman officer starts to ask me why she was really curious she was like hey what happened so it was the first time an officer had ever asked me why on a on a more genuine level why somebody why i've been arrested or like what happened in the past etc at this point i was already as i mentioned graduated from college working etc and so as i start to have a conversation with her that same officer who stopped me initially is is essentially telling me to be quiet and shut up and so i had to stop at one moment i'm like you're talking to me she's having a conversation with me she's asking me questions i'm responding why are you being rude and so i stopped and talked to the to the woman officer and i asked her i was like is it okay for me to continue having this conversation with you she says yes so i start to tell her about my experience when i was 16 years old um experiencing police brutality which we could talk about in a, in, in a bit and why i ended up getting arrested and she is the very reason why I didn't end up with a summons. So she stopped the other officer from giving me a summons after listening to that story. And it was the first time in probably my 28 years, now I'm 28 years old, that I've ever had an encounter with an officer where I should have gotten a summons or something. And they actually stopped to have a conversation with me, a genuine one to ask me questions and see how I felt and stopped the other officer who initially was going to give me a summons from giving me one and allowing me to continue walking. And what I've always experienced growing up being stopped by officers is that for some reason, They've just always been rude. So this idea of a of a good cop never was a thing to me growing up, especially in my community, because every encounter was always so negative. I can't, you, it, like, there's no, I felt like there was no respect. I felt like I was just walking and somebody just assumed that I was 
causing trouble or I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. And off the bat, it was just, they would just approach me in a rude way. And I never understood why this was uh, at that time. I understand now. But as a teenager, you don't, you just like, yo, dude, like, relax. You're sitting here asking me questions. And every time I'm trying to respond, you're being rude. It was, it wasn't until later on after all these different experiences where I try to, I try my best to be objective. And every day you're reminded <laughs> that it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to believe this notion of good cops because you're consistently reminded of negativity and, and, and seeing people that look like you who come from this, um, who don't come from the same community as you, um, you know, just causing harm, being rude, being assholes, et cetera. And so I think that was part of the reason why you and I grew such a, a, a close bond because it, it was one of the first times I sat down. I was like, man, there are people who are, who look like us and who are fighting from within, but why, why don't we see this more often? And why, why don't those conversations happen more often in a public manner? Uh, because you know what? That female cop, if she would saw you walk into the park, would never stop you. If she would never stop you, you would never met her. And that's the key thing. The cops that really care about the community don't do what that other cop does. So you won't have that much interaction with that type of cop. So that's the key thing there, you know? Like, we have a similar story that we met cops that were actually genuine, you know? They were real, they were sincere, and they care about how they treat people. Once you meet a cop like that, that makes a big difference in any community, especially black and brown communities. Cops that care, cops that want to do the right thing. And that transcends color, you know? If you're doing the right thing, well, you, nobody's going to care what color you are as long as you're doing the right thing, you know? You're, doing, you're, you're upholding the badge, you're doing you're being just with people, you're treating people with respect, you're not uh, racially profiling anybody, you're not beating people's asses for no reason. But, but you're saying something important, right? So in my mind, and just based on research and the work I've done, and I'm sure, Kevin, you probably feel similarly, you know, my thoughts are the reason that communities of color are targeted so much is simply because of white supremacy and, and institutional racism. And do you do you also think, as somebody from within, do you also see those things play out? And do you think that's the reason why our communities are targeted a lot more than others? Yeah, uh, I would say more institutional racism more than anything else. Because when you come out of the academy and they put you in a neighborhood like My Haven, Spanish Harlem, Harlem, Washington Heights, Bed-Stuy, East New York, they say, oh, you're in a high crime area to fight the criminals. Everybody here are criminals. They also teach you that they hate you. They get, they hate you. They want you to die. Be careful. You know, these people are animals, especially these people in the projects. None of them work. They live off your taxes, you know, and they feed you that and they feed you that. Now, a lot of black and brown people that grew up in those very same projects that they say that nobody works, they won't belong. They won't belong. So what they do, they play along, you know, and certain cops, most cops would be like, okay, I don't believe the BS this guy is saying, but let me do what I need to do and just move on with my life, you know, and that's how most cops are. They just want to move on with their life. Now, the institutional white supremacist, you're going to have particular officers that are straight up racist, especially like the officers that. I'm not going to get into detail about my lawsuit, my current lawsuit, but this guy is a straight up white supremacist. 
and he hides his racism by having a lot of black and brown people around him to show, hey, I'm a progressive man. You know, I don't see color. Look, this guy is my driver. Or this guy is my, is I promoted to detective. Look at this guy. I promoted to the detective too. But you have to also see what he does behind the scene, not behind the scenes. He may promote black and brown people to detectives, but there's different levels to detectives. You have third grade, which is the lowest, second grade, and first grade. You may have, you might promote several black and brown people to detectives, but what, how are you promoting your white officers? Are you giving them second and first grade detective shields, which is a great pay, uh, pay bump, you know? And what type of units you put in your white officers, you know? Usually they put these white officers uh, into prestigious units like intel or counterterrorism, while units like narcotics, which used to be prestigious, it's not prestigious anymore. They said mostly black and brown people there, you know, or dignify or or dignitary uh, service. Like they protect like the mayor and other public officials. You're not going to see too many black and brown people in those units. It's going to be mostly dominated by whites. And when you do, do see somebody of color there, they stay the, the, the rank of third grade detectives. They won't get bumped up to the next level. So that's how the racism works, you know? They give you crumbs and tell you they're giving you, and they give you crumbs and they tell you they're feeding you a whole steak, you know? So I, I have a question about that. In terms of this idea of, of good cops, right? And I'm, I'm putting the, the air, air quotes up, right? How can you stay a good cop, right, within a racist system? Well, I could, before I answer that, I'll, answer, I'll ask you a question. It's how can you stay a good black and brown man within a racist system that we live in? country you know your conscience would tell you do the right thing you know my conscience which is my bible tells me to treat everybody with respect regardless of who they are you know my conscience which is also my bible says to treat my neighbor as i'll treat myself you know because god created us in his image so if i love god i will love my fellow human being who's created in the image of god you know, so that's how it is. You have to have a good conscience. If you say you were a good person before you became a cop, and then all of a sudden you become uh, this uh, black and brown hating uh, person, cop, you never was a good person. You never had a conscience. So, so with that, right? I think, um, I, I think what you're bringing up is a really good point, and you asked a really good question in response to to what Kevin was asking. But one thing that I've seen and witnessed and experienced and continue to see is that in not just the police force, but many of our organizations, companies, school systems, et cetera, are led by white folks. Oftentimes folks who, who don't know much about us, but they're in positions of power and they can create policies and they can create rules and regulations that impact us the most without ever having to meet us or be on the ground, et cetera. And sometimes I also see people of color go into these positions and almost fall in line with a Eurocentric agenda that impacts black and brown people. And sometimes I think it's so deep and it's what we refer to also like internalized impression. I think that it's so deep that they don't even realize at times that what they're conforming to is white supremacy or, or institutional racism and sometimes perpetuate that which harm, further harms black and brown people. And so I think it's a lot harder 
for folks in those positions to speak out than it is to fall in line. So I've seen a lot of people fall in line. How do you maintain your authenticity in these spaces, right? And, and how do you come to work every day and fight the same battle when you're seeing racism continuously played out and you're seeing injustices right literally right in front of your face on a consistent basis because again i you know it could be a lot easier to fall in line than it is to speak out about some of the things that you're seeing usually when uh our people that get up in power or position of influence what they usually the people that usually get picked are the people that fall in line you know they pick the person whose personality black and brown, whose personality is like, okay, I'm better than this guy, you know? I'm the exception to the rule. I know my people, they, they're nothing. They will never amount to anything, but I survived, you know? So you have this uh, superiority complex of black and brown people that make it and don't want to help the next person. Because we as a people been destroyed for centuries. What happened to us didn't happen overnight. It took centuries and generations for us to come the way we are. The way that a lot of us, we hate each other. You know, we hate each other. We think that, oh, why this guy? Because name a group of people that will shoot another group of person because he stepped on his sneakers. Or beefing because they form a different block. You don't really hear that outside of black and brown communities. And that's because we have self-hatred. Now, the only way we can learn- Which was, which was created though, which was, mm -hmm. which was, was created. By again, supremacy. It was created, but you know what? It goes back to your conscience. You know it was created, but you won't do it, right? Because your conscience will tell you that's wrong. Because you had the fact that you love yourself as a black man. Now, have we been taught by the media that being black is ugly? That having our coarse hair is bad? Like it says in Spanish, pelo malo, pelo bueno. English is good hair, bad hair. But we had to learn how to overcome those things. And the reason they do what they do to us because they took away our history. If we knew our history, how we built this country, we wouldn't be thinking that every black man is a drug dealer. We wouldn't think that every so-called uh, Puerto Ricans are uh, car thieves or drug addicts. Let's take the Puerto Ricans. If it wasn't for them, Korea would have been lost during the Korean War. But they don't teach you that in history. They don't teach you that Pedro Albizio Campos, a Puerto Rican, he helped write the Irish Constitution. They don't teach you that one of the premier black historian in this country, Sean Arturo Schomburg, is Puerto Rican. They don't teach that lynching was not. Who, who, who Arturo also identifies Afro Latino. Yeah. Right? Yes. They don't teach you that. You know, they don't teach you that lynching was not only for blacks, but a lot of Latinos were being lynched also. You know, they don't teach you that as they say that blacks were not allowed to go to certain areas that Latinos weren't allowed to go there either. Like in the Southwest in Texas, in Texas in the South, they'll say no niggers or Mexicans, dog allowed. They don't teach you that because they don't teach those things. How can we uh, fight the same struggle if we think we're different? The books, the, the education is there. Now it's the willingness of guys like us that are conscience that, how you say, woke, to get that information right there. That's why when I become, a, uh, when I get a new uh, a black and brown uh, officer to work with and he's new, first thing I do is teach them about themselves first, to have a conscience and their history. This is what we do. This is what we've been through, you know, because if you look at our history, even right after slavery, the reconstruction era, blacks were building stuff. 
black and brown people were building this country and we was coming up fast, so fast that the Klan had to step in and demolish that. You know, the banks in uh, um, the average bank, white bank in the U.S. during the, during the Reconstruction era, era only had one million dollars inside it. The average black bank had 10 to 20 million dollars. So what happened? Once they got wind of it, the government got involved and a lot of these banks went under because they placed what? A white person in charge. All of a sudden, that money get uh, got taken. Let's fast forward 40 years again, 40 years later, Black Wall Street. Tulsa was not the only Black Wall Street. There was Black Wall Street all over the Midwest and the South. But what happened? During that time period, they was teaching eugenics, you know, that you have to weed out Black and brown people away. You got to weed them out. So, and that they need the white man to hold their hands in order to, uh, for them to survive. Now you got all these prosperous towns, millionaires, business, self, almost self-governing because they had their own elected officials doing better than white town. So they had destroyed those Black Wall Street in order for them to uh, propagate that, that image that blacks and brown people are inferior. They had to get rid of it. And guess what? Like Kevin says, the image was created, but we always, it's like, uh, I like to go to this passage, uh, passage, passage in the Bible when Elijah was crying to the God saying, listen, all the Israel has fallen away from you. They all worshiping idols. But God responded back to Elijah saying, no, I have 7,000 men that have not bowed their knee to any idols that still serve me. So there's always going to be a group of black and brown people that's going to be conscious that always going to fight for the people. But we have to be able to learn how to organize grassroots. Take it like uh, with Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. Brilliant men. Du Bois said we had to take over the educational system, the Talented Ten. Booker T. was like, no, we have to get, get the grassroots. If you want to run a society, you need both. You need the intellectuals and you need the grassroots. You need a guy that know how to be a plumber, how to be a carpenter that knows how to build cars. And you need the educators. You need the people that can teach law, you know, that can think, esoteric. You need all of that in a society. So I would say all of this, if you know all of this as a man or a woman, go and you become a cop, you won't get corrupt. You can't get corrupted. But do you think that you could be fired and or silenced? Like I, I, I still can't fully wrap my mind around how much power you can really get knowing all these things as a black or brown person in the in a system that is meant to keep you down and that's meant to be be racist so maybe you can do your little part in your neighborhood but i don't i'm just trying to wrap my mind around how you can really dismantle this system from the inside i i don't really know necessarily know if i believe it well how can i say this let's go back one my uh let's go back to uh thurgood marshall's uh, playbook how he basically destroyed segregation. We had to, he learned, he used their own rules against them. He said, okay, we're gonna be separate but equal. You ever notice, you ever wonder why he used the state of Arkansas, uh, all the 50 states to destroy uh, segregation? Arkansas was the poorest state in the union. So they're being the poorest state in the union and you bring out, you have to have separate but equal. They go to the best white colleges and say, listen, we see everything that these white colleges have, you have to give it to the black people also. The same exact thing. Because otherwise, you'd be breaking this law separate but equal. So guess what? It was cheaper to in integrate, right? Yeah. Racism wasn't done away. They just changed the rules. The way this country was built on racism, you had to destroy it from the foundation, which is not going to get destroyed. But what we and you and everybody else on this podcast, what we can do, we can educate ourselves and our family and form communities that will be, uh, whatchamacallit, 
self-sustaining. We don't have to go to other people to get our stuff. Just how it was prior to uh, integration. During the Great Depression, I talked to uh, a friend of mine that his grandparents said during the Great Depression, the way they survive is like, okay, you have goats, I have chickens. This uh, Jason will grow uh, rice and beans. And that's how they survive. They trade it with each other. We can't do that today because none of us have that type of skills. And also, we don't have that love for each other. Most people in our communities. So we have to get back to that. Get back to our God. Get back to our original power. So I, I kind of want to um, kind of switch gears to kind of what's happening now. So obviously, you saw the, the George Floyd video. Uh, yeah. Horrible. Hard to watch. Horrible. Uh, some people call it trauma porn, right? We have to, why do we have to see these images of black and brown bodies being destroyed? As an officer, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, was any of that actually policing? Like, they said that he was stopped for a counterfeit 20. Is that a stop that should have even been made? Putting your knee on somebody's neck for nine minutes. Like, I can't see how any of that falls within the realm of serve and protect. So I would love to hear as an officer what, you see that whole situation, what you make of it. All right. For the alleged forged document, that's what, was, that's what he was arrested for. And that's what I originally heard, alleged forged document, which could be a fake $20 bill or writing uh, false checks. You know, yes, you could get arrested for that because that's a criminal act. You know, having a forged, uh, if I found a counterfeit uh, $20 bill, I have to call Secret Service, you know, is a big deal. Now, after he's apprehended, after he's handcuffed, that's it. You know, you put him in the car. I don't know what happened. I didn't see this. I heard this other videos that he was in the car. He didn't want to get in the car, but he's handcuffed, you know, and he's on the floor subdued. There's no need for you to put your knee on his neck. That's not policing. That's not policing at all. That is just straight up being an animal, being a vile human being. You know, you just wanted to hurt somebody and you got a chance to hurt somebody, you know? I mean, if you look at him, he's smiling and has his hand in his pocket, nonchalant, like everything is good. So what he did was not police work. You will not find any cop in this country that would justify what that, what that cop did, those cops did. I was just going to say those cops, because there's three other cops who yeah, have those been, cops who yeah. haven't been arrested. What do you think about that? I think all four of them should be should be locked up, charged, all of it. Yeah. You know what? They all should get in trouble because I'll tell you this. The cop that's holding the foot, what he's going to say is basically, I didn't know what the guy at the other end was doing. <laughs> I was concentrating on his foot, you know? Which is bullshit. Yeah. They all, they all should be arrested because they were all accomplished one to another. What the legal system, what this country does, they like to play games, you know? They know our people. We are, unfortunately very emotional people you know that's why that's why like put like this they know how to handle an angry black and brown man but they know how to handle a calm and articulate and intelligent black and brown man they don't know how to handle that that's why edwin raymond is such a problem because they don't know how to handle him because he's so articulate very calm you know yeah see but and i have these conversations with people too and like these conversations around respectability politics, like, oh, well, if you speak a certain way, if you like wear your pants a certain way, nah, they, they'll still come for you. Like I, I look at, I look at situations like Henry Louis Gage, who was literally a Harvard professor in his house and they didn't believe that he lived there. What is, uh, 
was the gentleman um, Jason in Central Park? Yeah, the Amy uh, Amy Cooper, Cooper situation. The Cooper yeah. situation, right? Another like super articulate bird watching well, Harvard it, educated. It's, yeah, it's different. What I say is different is when you are talking to the public, you know, they don't know how to handle an intelligent person. Now, all those situations right there, like Henry Louis Gates, they came, they say they didn't believe because they thought it was a burglary. All those things was related to a crime or a so-called crime that was happening. You know, that's appearance. You know, that's the color of your skin. What I'm talking about is what what happened in Minnesota is that they like to play for emotions and they want to see chaos. So they arrested one guy, right? Took them five days, four or five days to arrest them, right? But they only arrested one guy. So now they're gonna wait a little bit longer and longer. They want to see how much out, uh, how much, how much more burning can happen. How much protest is gonna happen before they decide to arrest the other three people? You know. So they like to play games. You know, if it would have been any other group of people, it would have been done instantaneously. You know. But so- since it's us. They'll take their time, you know? They want to play for our emotions. So it's almost, uh, it sounds like what you're saying, um, thinking about what you're saying and Kevin is saying it too, is not like we, it, it sounds like we know that despite how much education you have, despite what you look like, et cetera, you can still be a target. But it sounds exactly. like there's o- there's also this other, this other idea that we're talking about in which uh, a, 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 a man of color or a black man who has, the institutional knowledge and fully understands what's happening, they become almost a threat to white society. So when that person is in a spotlight, white society is often threatened and they don't know what to do other than essentially try to beat that man down, sometimes physically, literally, but also like metaphorically, right? And so when you have that person, there's a saying for this and I'm, I'm, it's like, I'm, it's, it's, I can't think of it right now, but essentially, right, like you become more powerful as you learn more about your history, to your point, as you were saying, you become powerful as you learn about institutional racism and you have a full picture of what's going on. So when you're put in a public spotlight and you're talking out against it, it's going against what white society wants. So at any cost, they need to figure out how to silence you. Exactly. And that's, that's who the real dangers are, the people that know how to organize, you know? Go back to the Marcus Garvey, you know, he was more, they consider him more of a threat than W.E.B. Dubois. Right? Yeah. Such a threat. Such a threat. They created the FBI because of Marcus Garvey. (laughs) Why? Because Marcus Garvey was talking about build for yourself. They don't want us to be around, they don't want us to be around them fine. Just build for ourselves. You know, he got four cargo ships to trade with other countries. You know? He was working on that level. And once they saw that he got to that level and able to do that, they created a task force for him to get rid of him. And that's why they don't want you to be educated. You ever notice that the type of music that they put? I'm a hip-hop fan. Diehard. Well, I see the garbage that they put there. Doesn't let you think. You know, you can't think. You know, 
you can't think. It dumbs it down. You know, hip hop back in the days made you think about what they were saying, the metaphors, the similes, you know, the double entendres and all of that. The worst, the worst that we hear today is simple, idiotic, bubblegum, dumbfounding. You can name it anything, any other cinnamons that we could think about that makes us somebody stupid. That's what they're doing. So they don't want us to be educated. It's very easy to control a brute than an intelligent man. That's why back in the Dominican Republic or in Latin America, even in this country, they was killing the intellectuals in the colleges in the 60s and 70s because they knew how to organize. They knew how to galvanize the people and make them want to fight. Not make them, convince them to fight. It's a big difference. To make is to force. To convince is that you do it on your own heart, will, and soul, and mind to do it. So speaking of organizing, people have different feelings about the protests that have been happening happening around the country. So I, I wanted to kind of get your, your take on some of the protests. Because again, we see these images of cars literally, right? NYPD cars literally uh, mowing people down. Right. And it seems like some of this violence is being incited by law enforcement. So what what do you make of that? Well, the mowing down of cars and hitting people for no reason, I'm 100 percent against it. I'm 100 percent against it because we're not here to abuse our power. We're here to help people. You know, we we have the power to we should use our power to help people, not to destroy them. You know, so. And that, i like to add that majority of the people that are protesting are peaceful. Now you got some segments of the population that's not even from New York City, that's not even fighting for that cause. All they want to do is create chaos, you know? Paid agents, if you may say, who are burning down cars, who are throwing Molotov cocktails at police cars, you know? And those, are the, images, and those are the images that you see on purpose. Yes. Exactly. And that's not us doing it. We don't want that. Like, seriously, who the hell want to see things, your community burn? They putting that image out there that, okay, the people that are protesting are a bunch of anarchists. They're savages, you know? They don't want peace. They just want crime opportunity. But like you said, that's the images they put, they put together. Like, they put, like, uh, they put an image in, uh, what was it, Minnesota about the with two white men with AR-15s, they, oh, we protecting the stores. We don't want, we, we down with the protest. We, we saw what happened. That thing was wrong. But we, we're against looting. They didn't show the image of the two black men with, who was with them with AR-15. Because that right there sends a powerful statement to the country that black, white, and brown people standing together, you can't control them. That's when change will happen. But as they know how to play the divide and conquer game, you can continue seeing what we're seeing. Speaking of divide and conquer, and I think the NYPD is just like one extension of like this whole white supremacist umbrella, if you if you want to be real, right? It's, that's just one example. But I think it goes all the way to, to the, the top, right? The, the, the president said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, right? And when, when I heard that, I was absolutely disgusted because I'm like, that right there, that is literally okaying any type of violence. And it's inciting more of this violence. And 
I was just disgusted by it when I when I read it because I think it's it's justifying it's justifying racist behaviors. I keep on telling people, Trump being the media business for as long as he have, he knows how to stroke people's emotions. He's a genius for that, you know. Because the way he worded it, it could be taken either way, right? Because people are looting, uh, looting, they could so they gonna start shooting, right? Or because they are looting, law enforcement is going to be shooting. It's similar to that song that KRS-One did about uh, what uh, love is going to get you. When he says, what the fuck am I supposed to do? After every scenario, he could either go this way or he could go that way. So that's what's, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not a Trump supporter, just to put that there, <laughs> out there. But it's the way this, this thing that's happening right now, that distraction. We have to know a lot of our civil rights are being taken away. A lot of due process arrests, a lot of due process being taken away. A lot of uh, crimes that politicians are doing is going under the radar and being swept under the rug. You know, a lot of funding that's supposed to be going to our schools and educational system and job programs are being taken away. And how do they do that? By having this idiot tweeting stupid shit, <laughs> you know? Because we all know this country is controlled by the corporations. If we know that, the only way they can stay in power is by having people that they can puppeteer here and there. Absolutely. It's crazy. I mean, just to be somebody affected by this, seeing everything that's going on. And for me, even having, have, having some, some deeper triggers with my experience with police brutality and also, um, you know, being thrown behind bars for, for, for the situation. It's crazy. So I sit back and watch having even pleaded guilty at 16 years old to, to crimes I didn't even commit, but not knowing any better. Right. So some of this stuff affects me on a, on a much, um, Deeper level, I think to your point, as, as you guys both mentioned, as you understand history, as you understand laws and policies and everything that's going on, um, it, it's a different ballgame. And I want to switch gears a little bit really quickly before we transition, before we close out. So, Richie, you, you know, as we're seeing, you've been really vocal um, for a very long time. You and some of your colleagues have, have taken stance, stances uh, against police brutality and, and injustices for a number of years. And you were also featured in a in an Emmy Award winning film, Crime and Punishment, streaming on Hulu, where many of the injustices were highlighted and you spoke out about quotas, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit more about one, what made you wanna take that leap of faith and publicly come together with other folks and stand out against injustice? But two, some of the backlash you may have experienced as a black man in, in the NYPD. What made me want to come out was over the years, I spoken to other officers that we have to do something because it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. The city's going to explode. When I saw uh, Pedro, Pedro Serrano, who was part of uh, Stop and Frisk, Stop and Frisk, when he started doing, when he came out, I was like, okay, maybe there's going to be a change. And then a few years later, Sandy came up to me and said, listen, we're going to do a lawsuit against the department. Do you want to be down with it? And I was like, it scared the crap out of me. Because like, if I come out public, life for me as I know it is going to be completely different. You know, it's one thing talking about other cops and trying to tell them don't do this, do this, do it this way, you know, do it the right way. But to come out publicly and like condemn the NYPD is another ball game. So when I finally decided, I was like, you know what? Let me do it. Because, uh, Early in the year, an event that happened was we had this commanding officer go up to an apartment and a family during New Year's, a family that was just peacefully sitting and enjoying each other's company, he just wrecked it. 
grabbed one uh, uh, one of the moms by the crown of the head and said, get this fucking bitch out of here. And I'm like, this is not policing. This is abuse of power, white supremacy, white privilege, institutional racism, all rolled up in one. So I'm like, okay, something has to be done. When I decided to join, I was like, okay, once I join, life for me is going to be different. Everybody's going to be looking at me sideways. Even the ones that support me and know that 100% right, they're going to still play along to get along, you know? And one of the things that happened in my precinct was 90% of the cops that supported me out of 300 cops, 90% that supported me, 90, 90, 89% of them got transferred within the next year or two, pushed away. So basically what they did, they isolated me. And the more pe new people they brought in, they kept me away from them. So I couldn't teach them anything or speak to them. So that's what they did with me. They isolated us. They isolated me, Sandy, the whole time we was there, was me and Sandy was still there, when Sandy was still there, they isolated us completely. And they also tried to pick uh, fights with us. I had one sergeant step to me and like try and punk me. Once I took that first step forward towards him, he backed the fuck up because he knew the shit was gonna get real, you know? Another sergeant, he was like nitpicking me, nitpicking and it got to a point where he tried to grade me in front of my peers. Professionally, I cursed him out. But at the same time, I put the energy out there. We could go to the parking lot, you know? It's been very rough. I went from having like almost 400 hours of overtime a year to maybe less than 70, you know? So that's like a great financial hit that I took on my fa for my family. But all this, all those things pales in comparison for the greater picture is fighting for the rights of my people. Can you please shout out the, the documentary again and let people know where they could where they can see it? Oh man, Crime and Punishment. You can see it on Hulu. You know, it's a Sundance Award winning, Emmy Award, award winning, uh, international docu uh, documentary film winning. It, may, it won so many awards around the world, but yet most black and brown people never seen it, you know? And mm -hmm. we want to push that because the thing that me, what I'm doing, I need community support because this is a David versus Goliath type fight. I can't do it by myself. I need the support of the public. And that's another thing I feel I failed to mention was Thurgood Marshall with the segregation. He needed public support. With the public support, things will get changed in this country. The racism won't go away. They just package it a different way. But you know what? We're ready for that. You know, the more we educate, the way we become student of the game, once we become a student, we become a master of the game. We can predict what's the next move and be ready for that 20, 30 years later. And that's how you pass it on to your children. Mm. And they pass it on to their children. Yo, Officer Richie, we want to take the time to thank you for, for being part of the show today. We, we greatly appreciate it. I, I think you left us with uh, a lot to think about, especially during this time. This stuff isn't easy. This stuff is not easy, but I will say that it is simple. And what I mean by that is support people <laughs> and systems that are anti-racist. Support people and systems that are dismantling like systemic racism. Support, support Black, right? Buy Black. There are ways to do that. Um, Officer Richie hit on the fact that there used to be a Black banks, right? Wealthy Black banks. You know, there's still a few Black banks in this country. You know, support Black banks, right? Carver Bank is right in Harlem, right? You could put your money there. There are ways to kind of support Black. Buy Black, right? I saw a meme the other day that said, um, Jeff Bezos has enough money, right? There's independent Black bookstores. Shout out to the Lib Bar. We're going to get you on the show soon, right? Support Black. Yeah. Take a stance. Not taking a stance, like saying no stance, is a stance. Take a stance that you are against 
systemic racism and educate yourself. So Officer Richie, one of the things that I, I valued about our conversation today is you are a very intelligent brother, but more than that, you're a very well-read brother. Like you've, I could tell that you've read things, you know things, you've been able to kind of critically think because you have information, right? So educate yourself. Just a couple of, of things that I've kind of been, like I've read in the last couple years that have kind of helped me and Jay, if you want to throw out a couple of yours, um, the, assimil- uh, the assassination of the black male image, right? The new Jim Crow, Just Mercy, how to be anti-racist. And those are just a few, there's tons, tons of, of books and documentaries and articles, but arm yourself with education. And again, uh, we, we kind of talked about this before. And we, we talked about it a little bit today, but also voting in local elections. I think I think that's exactly too. Exactly. That stuff matters too, right? Uh so yeah. Um thank you again. We greatly appreciate it. Officer Richie, do you want to throw out your social medias? I don't know if you want people to be able to reach out to you uh, or something. Well, I'm uh R Baez and and my Instagram. Jeez, I have social media, but I'm not that Richie Bias at Facebook. Show me a shout out. I have an Instagram also. Uh, I have a Twitter account, but I have no idea how to use it. You know, I like to chase it. The one thing I wanted to say really quickly, though, to Kevin, as you were um, wrapping up and giving some messages and advice, the other thing is we all have a role to play. At least I believe. And that doesn't necessarily mean you need to be out there protesting or be on the front lines or anything like that but sometimes it is a tweet sometimes it's using your platform to have a conversation sometimes it's spreading the information that you know and the history you know there it could be donating to charitable causes donating um buying black right there are all these different things that you could be doing to support and i think that there's a role for everyone out there in dismantling racism so i always ask the question what do you feel is is your role and if you haven't thought about it after listening to this episode hopefully you will so we have to close out richie but again just want to say thank you for for being here with us and doing this on such short notice and having engaged such a difficult conversation and being authentic and and telling your truth because i think it's really important that we all as much as we try to maintain our authenticity and continue to engage in these conversations so once again thank you for for joining us yeah man thank you thanks for having me yo this podcast is dope i like it man and that's a wrap y'all